broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm. If you're watching here on YouTube, please do not forget to smash the sub button. That big red button just south of the video there, down below, underneath. And that bell for continued notifications so that you are notified when new content arrives on the channel. Continuing on through our differences series, or I guess I've labeled it on the channel, What's the Difference? That's the playlist name. And in the last part, which was part four overall, part two of Roman Catholicism, um, we dealt with baptism, or at least gave a limited synopsis of the differences Baptists have with Roman Catholics as regard as regards baptism. And now we come to the Lord's Supper. We have remaining the Lord's Supper, saints, and Mariology, and Scripture and Tradition. So those three sections is what we have left. And um, and so we're just going to go ahead and dig into the Lord's Supper here. I don't know how far we're going to get. The Lord's Supper is kind of a, a lengthy section, but uh, much of it, I think, is just uh, citations of the Catholic Catechism along with the the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, I don't know if we'll get through all three of these sections today. Um, we'll we'll just have to go and see. We'll have to find out. Uh, the way that I've compiled this information uh, kind of demands a flexible, somewhat flexible approach to presenting it, and um, and so we'll just see. We'll we'll see what happens, but. Um, Let's begin with the Lord's Supper. Obviously, this is one of the more well-known differences that we have with Roman Catholics is our doctrines of the Eucharist, respectively, are very different. This was a, 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 a rather um, contentious subject during the time of the Reformation. Uh, even in the first generation of the Reformation, it was a subject that was uh, that was highly contested uh, by the Reformers. And even the Reformers, especially in the earlier years, did not agree amongst themselves as to the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And um, what you have early on is a mixture of all sorts of things on the Protestant side. Um, there were some who maintained, uh, you know, or, and I'm talking about very early on, maintained transubstantiation, would, would, would write, uh, you know, along the lines of still affirming something like transubstantiation. Then you had the Lutherans who, with Luther, began to pull away from transubstantiation um, and um, and went for a doctrine of what's called consubstantiation. That's another subject to talk about altogether. Uh, we won't really get into that. And then uh, the Reformed eventually understood, came to understand the Lord's Supper as taught in Scripture to be what some have called since suprasubstantiation, which uh, which maintains a real presence of Christ in the supper, uh, but that presence is, of course, not carnal. That's the key uh, distinction. So um, let's get let's go ahead and 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 jump into this. I, I have I've had some criticism uh, on this series already that will uh, you know say things. Well, one criticism uh, has been along the lines of 
and this was with regard to the Eastern Orthodox Church, there are several catechisms published. Um, you know, why are you reading theologians when it comes to Eastern Orthodoxy? Was the implied question. Um, and I would just say I'm aware of the catechisms. The catechisms are emphasize different things. Um, and not only that, but because the last formal, um, uh, basically ecclesiastical uh, practice or uh, mechanism that would facilitate any kind of binding authority happened in the 8th century for Eastern Orthodoxy, um, there has been a lot of diversity since. Uh, and uh, so it's not as if those, those catechisms do not necessarily... Um, while they might represent some things across the board, not everything in those catechisms are going to be applied the same way across the board. And that's just the inevitable result of not having something like a universal bishop uh, like Roman Catholicism does. Roman Catholicism can barely apply anything consistently across the board, let alone uh, you know, um, a, a tradition that has a, a multiplicity of autocephalous churches um, that are no longer governed by formally governed by patriarchs, and um, metropolitans are even an honorary title um, to some extent. And so uh, I, I, all that to say is I was aware of the catechisms. Uh, it would be nice to be able to have a discussion about the catechisms. I'm limited in terms of what kind of content I can pre uh, present here. Um, but also know that the catechisms are also not going to uh, envelop everything about the uh, formal teaching if there was such a thing in Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, when it comes to Roman Catholicism, I had just the opposite criticism, which was, why don't you ask somebody what they believe instead of, you know, oversimplifying things and passing over certain things? You should just ask somebody what they believe. The funny thing about Roman Catholicism and Roman Catholics is whenever I have gone off the theology uh, that has been communicated to me by a person, a theologian, or a layperson in Roman Catholicism, I'm told by others that, well, that's those are just theologians. You actually need to consult the uh, the uh, formal um, uh, canons of the church to determine what Roman Catholicism holds. So that's what I'm doing in this series, is I'm going through the, the, the catechism of the Catholic Church, because the last thing I would want to do is misrepresent the formal position um, and, you know, skew that understanding with the opinion of uh, a single person or a single couple of people or whatever. So we're using the, the, the catechism of the Catholic Church here. So all that to say, let's jump into the Lord's Supper, what Rome believes. So beginning with the Catholic Catechism, uh, section two, I think it's chapter two. Um, I don't think it's, it's article three of, let's see, I don't, what I would like to do is, um, so when I cite my, when I actually cite these quotations, the difficult thing to do is to get it straight um, with the format. Okay, with the flow of the actual catechism. So it's going to be, so it would be, let's see here. Uh, sorry, guys. Um, so it would be a Catholic catechism. Uh, part 1, Section 2, Chapter 1, Article 3, and it's number 1367. 
Again, this is on the Lord's Supper. It says, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. All right, so already you have a sacrificial view of the Eucharist because it's being identified in some way with the sacrifice of Christ itself. The victim is one and the same, it says. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. That is, in the Eucharist. Um, so, just a couple of things here. Already you can see some differences between Baptists and, and Roman Catholics. We've already covered the idea of the priesthood of believers. Um, one of the issues that I have with iconography, with praying to saints, with uh, a priesthood in general within the church, and with the way in which the Eucharist is described as a sacrifice, is that essentially what's happening is we have a, we have a mediator between man and God, or God and man, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, and it seems to be the case that what Rome has done is they've set up a, a, a yet a, another mediator between us and Christ. So not only, we're not, it's almost as if we're not able to have a mediation between God and man via Christ, we actually have to have mediation between man and Christ. Um, it's as if he hasn't condescended enough to us. And so there, there need be a priesthood that mediates between us and our Lord. And um, not only do we need a mediation between us and God, but we also need a mediation between us and Christ, who has supposedly condescended to us in a human nature like ours. Um, and so that's, a, that's a, an issue we could continue to go into, because... The Apostle Paul clearly tells us that there is but one mediator, but I haven't gotten to what Baptists believe yet. I'll, I'll, I'll get into some of that when we, when we get there. But note, note a few things about this paragraph, that um, in, in this paragraph you have a, it's not, now we want to, what we want to do is we want to represent the other side fairly, um, and oftentimes what's said about Rome is that they believe in a re-sacrifice of Christ. That's not entirely true. And so some, some people will say, well, they re-sacrifice Christ or they offer repeated sacrifices. And while you might be able to show that that's logically the implication, that's not their confession. Their confession is that the Eucharist is kind of like a, um, uh, not just a reapplication, but a recapitulation of the same sacrifice, if that makes sense. Um, and, and understandably, you know, of course, we can point to ways in which that, that doesn't make sense to us or ways in which uh, that seems to be logically incongruent. Uh, obviously, it's, it's biblically, uh, it seems to, to us to be biblically inconsistent and wrong. And so, um, but it's important to at least represent what they, what they confess. So, Note that Rome believes the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, what we call the Lord's Supper, is nothing else than a recapitulation of the same sacrifice in an unbloody mode. All right, so um, that's what I want us to notice with that paragraph. They move forward in the Catechism, same place, uh, it's, it's even uh, chapter 1, uh, but this time it's, and it's still... Um, uh, it's still Article 3, but it's number 1374. 
says, The mode of Christ's presence under the Eucharistic species is unique. It raises the Eucharist above all the sacraments as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all the sacraments tend. In the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ, is truly, really, and substantially contained. This presence is called real, by which is not intended to exclude the other types of presence as if they could not be real too, but because it is presence in the fullest sense, that is to say, it is a substantial presence by which Christ, God and man, the full person, makes himself holy and entirely present. Okay, this is the doctrine of transubstantiation. Transubstantiation holds that though the accidents of the bread and the wine remain the same, that is, they maintain their appearance, they maintain their texture, their taste, and so on, yet the substance has been changed into the body and blood of Christ. It is raised, it says, it raises those elements to a higher level in transubstantiation. So there is a there is a a a a change of substance in the Eucharist that takes place. All right, that's that's the idea of transubstantiation. There's a a change of substance that takes place. Everything continues to look the same, taste the same. That's its accidents, but the substance has changed. And so, objectively, when you take of the Eucharist, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you're objectively eating substantially the body and blood, e- eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ. Um, they go on to say, it is by the conversion, all right, transubstantiation, it is by the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in this sacrament. The Church Fathers strongly affirmed the faith of the Church in the efficacy of the Word of Christ and of the action of the Holy Spirit to bring about this conversion. Again, that's that's from chapter 2, uh, <clears throat> or part, part 1, or part 2, chapter 2, uh, chapter 1, um, article 3, and number 1375. All right, so... Um, Transubstantiation is the doctrine, again, that the substance of the elements change into the body and blood of Christ, whereas the accidents remain the same. So everything continues to look the same, everything continues to taste the same, and so on. Now, some biblical texts that they might appeal to in order to justify their position would be the institution itself, where Jesus says things like, this is my blood. All right, so when um, he says, for example, in uh, Mark 14, take, eat, this is my body. And of course, it's the the bread that they're eating. Uh, Matthew 26 uses the same language. Take, eat, this is my body. Um, Luke 22, 19, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul recapitulates the the institution, take, eat, this is my body. He quotes Christ as saying, which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, so uh, they would appeal to texts like that, but they would also appeal to uh, even stronger texts, perhaps, um, of uh, in found in John 6. 
If you go to John 6, uh, what Jesus says in, uh, let's see, what Jesus says in uh, verse 32 of John 6, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven which is himself, here in a moment we'll find that out. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then he says this in verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do the will, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has all that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I raise him up at the last day. So the subject matter here is receiving Christ unto everlasting life. Christ is the bread of life which we are to feast upon in order to participate in this everlasting or eternal life. Um, he says, uh, I am the bread which came down from heaven in verse 41. Um, and then he says more strongly in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And then he says in verse 53, and this is really the nail in the in the coffin for some who ended up walking away from him at the end verse 66 the last uh the last verse of the section um jesus says most assuredly i say to you unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and i will raise him up at the last day now well, we're not going to get to uh, a correction of this under uh, of 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 their use of these texts just yet. Uh, let's get into our view, uh, which distinguishes uh, the Lord's Supper, um, what we believe to be the biblical version of the Lord's Supper, from the Roman Catholic understanding. So, um, what do Baptists believe? Again, I'm citing from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. This is Chapter Twenty, Article Two. It says this or chapter 30, article 2, sorry. In this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sin of the quick or the dead, but only a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross, once for all. So there you can see, instead of a recapitulation of, his, of Christ's original sacrifice, it's not a recapitulation of sacrifice, it's a remembrance of the sacrifice. So it's an emblem or a sign of the sacrifice. Now it goes on, it says, And a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same. So the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper is a, an expression of praise. So that the Popish office of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ's own sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of the elect. And what they're saying there um, is, uh, is that the... The sacrifice of the Mass, from our perspective, cheapens the true sacrifice of Christ. Because what, it's, what it ends up saying is that this glorious sacrifice that occurred in history for the good of our souls occurs week in and week out, and not only that, sometimes daily. 
there's a daily mass, right? And so it occurs regularly. Um, and, and, and not only that, but it cheapens the effect of the original sacrifice because the effect of the original sacrifice is the remission of sins. Yet we're being told by Roman Catholics or by official Roman church dogma that a person must come to a sacerdote or a priest in order to, in order to, uh, participate in a re-sacrifice, not a re-sacrifice, but a recapitulation of the sacrifice of Christ in order to receive that remission of sins or that, that justification. Um, and so, and so our confession is here issuing a rebuke to the Romish position on the grounds that it does injury to uh, it takes something away, not from the Lord's Supper. It takes something away from the sacrifice of Christ. Um, so, for our part, it's not an unbloody. It's not an unbloody sacrifice, like the, cate- the Catholic Catechism would suggest, would teach. It's it's not an unbloody sacrifice. It's not a continual sacrifice. We learn in Hebrews ten twelve through fourteen, where it says, "But this man, after he had offered." one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. He has perfected. So on the one hand, in terms of the work of Christ, he has sat down. That means he has entered his rest. Um, In the Old Testament temple, there were no seats. There was no place to sit. Um, And that's because the work wasn't done. That's part of the reason why there was a priest back then, to continue the work, right? To continue the mediation, if you will. But because the one true mediator has come, uh, the typological mediation has ceased. There no longer needs to be a human, earthly intermediary between God and man because the true mediator has come, completed the work, has entered his heavenly glory, and has seated himself at the right hand of God. That's what he's doing, all right? Um, And then, on the other hand, it's by one offering uh, that he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, right? So it's it's by this one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And that's in the perfect tense. This is something that has already happened. Um, If you go to, again, it's Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. Um, it says, for by one offering he has perfected, perfect tense, it's a completed work. It's been done. He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now, if we were to say that, well, no, there is a continual sacrifice or that the initial sacrifice of Christ is continual in the mode of the Eucharist, um, we would have to say at that point that this perfection is not perfected. It's not completed. It hasn't been completed. But the text, that is to say in the original, puts that perfection in the perfect tense, which which means it has been perfected. This leads us to the Protestant doctrine of justification, which is to say that our justification is an act of God, a judicial act of God that happens irrespective of what we do. All right. It, It happens uh, a priori, if you will, or before any works have been have come into the picture of consideration. 
in terms of our judgment and in terms of our justification. Um, we are declared righteous for the righteousness of Christ and for the remission of sins, sins that we have in his once-for-all sacrifice. It's not a continual sacrifice. If it was a continual sacrifice that we needed, then there's no sense in which we could say we have been perfected, if that makes sense. Yet Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 14 seems to argue otherwise. Uh, the chapter 30, uh, article 6 of the Second London Confession goes on to say, that doctrine which maintains a change of the substance of bread and wine, transubstantiation, into the substance of Christ's body and blood, commonly called transubstantiation, by consecration, by consecration of a priest, or by any other way, is repugnant not to Scripture alone, but even to common sense and reason, overthroweth the nature of the ordinance, and hath been, and is, the cause of manifold superstitions, yea, of gross idolatries. And the idea of the gross idolatries, what's being said here, is that um, if the bread and the wine substantially change into Christ corporeally, then they must be worshipped. They must be worshipped. And so what the confession is getting at here is that if they must be worshipped, essentially what you're saying is bread and wine must be worshipped because the bread and wine is Christ. Um. And, and, and so it leads to idolatry of a created thing, of a creature, bread and wine, uh, and an exaltation and, and, a, and an, uh, a, a veneration that goes beyond uh, how those things ought to be treated. Of course, there ought to be reverence for the supper and, and the institution and so on. But to say that the bread and wine just is Jesus upon consecration... Is to uh, is to actually burden the conscience with worship. It must be worshipped. It's not just that it can be worshipped. Those elements must be worshipped if they really are Christ. Now the other thing is is you know um, the concept of icon uh, uh, iconography comes into this where uh, it, it's often argued that you know we worship through means. Uh, we're not directly in the presence of God. We worship through means. We, we, uh, we must. Uh, uh, we are brought nearer to God through this image, right? Which, which is, of course, um, rejected for our part, uh, and we believe it's patently unbiblical. But they might turn around and say, with regard to the Eucharist, um, well, it's it's not idolatry because it's not the bread and the wine themselves that you're worshiping. It's Christ. Um, but it is the bread and the wine itself themselves that you're worshiping. If, if indeed the bread and the wine have been changed substantially into the body and blood of Christ, yet accidentally has remained the same, how can you, how can you separate the bread and wine from the true object of your worship? If indeed your worship depends on the bread and wine to be there in the first place, right? Um, so that's why, that's why that, that particular article or paragraph in the confession charges idolatry to the Romish mass. Um, moving on, uh, just to, just to kind of continue on that, on that point, scripture, scripture does not teach substantial transformation. Even at the, when we look at the text that we looked at John six, for example, the strongest language in scripture there is perhaps, concerning the, the eating of the flesh of Christ and the drinking of the blood of Christ. 
um, they would connect that, of course, to the institution of the Lord's Supper. And they'd say, look, um, connecting John 6, uh, they would they would go to John 10, uh, or not John 10, I'm sorry, um, where, let's see, they would go to, I got my outline mixed up here, per the usual, um, you know, maybe contextualizing the later institution of the Lord's Supper with John 6, they would they would turn to something like Mark 14 or or Luke 22 or 1 Corinthians 11. This is my body where Christ says that. They would link that back to John 6 and they would say, well, look, reading this literally, they're actually employing an ultra-literal hermeneutic here, and they would say, reading this literally, you would need to understand the actual, bre- actual bread. It's a... It's a um, it's a, uh, it's an indicative statement. Uh, you would need to, you would need to understand the actual bread that Jesus is holding up and saying, and, and commanding his disciples to eat, um, as the body and blo- as the body of Christ itself. It's a clear statement. Jesus is clearly telling us that that's the case. This is my body. Take and eat. Um, and upon a, a surface level understanding, you would be like, well, yeah, of course. Um, but of course, that that kind of a rigid, rigid literalism uh, cannot be consistently applied across the board, um, across the text in general. Uh, and the other thing that you know we'd want to point out is that the body of Christ, like as he said in Luke twenty two nineteen and First Corinthians eleven twenty four, as he said, "This is my body." Obviously, his body is right there before his disciples and he's holding bread. Um, and so they would not be thinking if they're, you know, they're looking at Jesus, Jesus is holding this bread. Um, they would not be thinking Jesus is, 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 is literally identifying himself with the bread or the bread with his body. Um, and the reason for that is because he's holding it. Um, and, and any person, especially in the ancient world, would not have understood that bread to literally, corporeally, and substantially be the body, but would understand it to be a metonymy or something that stood for the body of Christ, something that is being put in the place of the body of Christ and is to be received as a sign of the body of Christ. So when Jesus says, this is my body, he speaks, he speaks in, in, in terms of a metaphor. Um, this is no different than John 10, 7. Uh, if you want, if you want to apply that kind of a literalistic hermeneutic to to the institution of the Lord's Supper, if Jesus really means this bread is corporeally and substantially His body, well, then turn to John ten seven, where Jesus says, "I am the door of the sheep." Uh, of the sheep, you would have to conclude upon the basis of 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 that kind of a literalistic hermeneutic that Jesus is also literally and substantially the door for literal and substantial sheep. Um, but of course. That's not how our Lord's talking. Our Lord's talking by way of metaphor. He's using a figure. Um, he's not trying to say that he is a, you know, in substance, a door with a hinge made of wood or something like that. Um, in John six forty one, we read, uh, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Now, it, now, this is a little bit... I don't know if I want to go into this or not. I guess I'll say something just briefly. One of the things Rome, I believe Rome does, is they invert the type. And so, 
whereas Jesus says, I am the bread which came down from heaven, Rome takes the bread and says, this bread is Christ, which came down from heaven. And so the type seems to be inverted. Um, and to make the bread, to make the bread itself Christ substantially is to flip the typology upside down. It identifies the inferior with the superior. In other words, it, 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 what it does, instead of, of course, the claim is that we raise, the, the Eucharist is raised up to the level of Christ, but really in practicality, what it does is it takes Christ and rips him down. Uh, it inverts the typology, right? Whereas, whereas now Christ seems to be serving the Eucharist, the Eucharist doesn't seem to be serving Christ, if that makes sense. There's more that could be said on that, uh, but that's just more of, by way of comment to get your wheels turning. Think about that. You might not agree with that approach, and of course, if you're Roman Catholic, you most certainly don't. Um, although I hope uh, it would it would at least um, get some gears churning. Um, the other, the, just the last thing I'll say on this is that our Lord is the bread of life. In John six forty eight, we learn that, and um, and that has to be other than the bread of the Eucharist. Uh, the reason it has to be other than the bread of the Eucharist is because in John 6, 58, it says, He who eats this bread will live. If you go to John 6, verse 58, um, in John 6, 58, it says, This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And of course, there are those who eat that bread who do not, right? There are those who eat that bread who do not receive eternal life. Um, this is even, I think, this is even something that the Roman Catholic would grant, that a person could eat that bread, not be a true believer, die in their sins, and not live forever. Um, but if that's the case, and again, the bread is identified with the body and blood of Christ. The, the bread is identified with, well, the, the bread and the wine are identified with the body and blood of Christ. The, the bread and the wine just are Christ upon the consecration. And Jesus says it. Uh, if, 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 if man eats this bread, he's going to live forever. The reality is, is that not everybody who eats the bread lives forever. And so, um, and so the idea here needs to be, the, the, the sense here needs to be understood as, as being spiritual. Uh, this is the bread of life. The Eucharist, or the bread in the Eucharist, cannot be the bread of life because the bread in the Eucharist does not necessarily result in life, if that makes sense. Christ is the bread that always results in life without fail, no matter what. All right. And so um, just one more thing on the, on the, uh, on the Lord's Supper. Whew, we're already at 35 minutes. <clears throat> Chapter 30, Article 7. Worthy receivers outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, corporeally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, 
the body and blood of Christ being then not corporeally, corporeally sorry, or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to, the, to, the, to their outward senses. So, during the Reformation, there were three main views. The Lutheran view, which is consubstantiation, the, the presence of Christ is not local or corporeal, it's illocal, uh, but it's nevertheless there. Um, you had the Zwingliite view, which is, uh, the, which would be a memorialist view, which, which denies the real presence of Christ in the supper. And then you have the, uh, the reformed view, uh, the, the view that makes it into the confessions that states that, no, there is a real presence of Christ. The language in scripture is, is strong enough for that, but it's not but what's the mode of that presence? It's not substantial in the sense of, of corporeal substantiality. Uh, that is to say that the bread and the wine do not change into the body and blood of Jesus. The presence of Christ is spiritual. Uh, it's a spiritual communion that Christ has with his people in the Lord's Supper, and it's beneficial to the participants only if they approach the Supper by faith. In other words, they only partake of Christ by faith. So it's not as if, in Roman Catholicism, if you if you partake of the Eucharist, regardless of whether or not you have faith, you partook of Christ. And here, in this view, we, we, we would want to say, in the confessional view, the only way you're going to partake of Christ is by faith. Whatever is not a faith, Paul says in Romans 14, is sin. And so it must be by faith that we approach the Lord's Supper and John Calvin described uh, faith as the mouth which receives Christ spiritually. Uh, it's the mouth of the soul, if you will. So there's an there's an outward sign us eating the bread and the and and drinking the cup of an inward reality that's taking place by means of faith that the Spirit works in us. And just as we say that Christ comes and dwells in our hearts spiritually, we say that right. In regeneration, Christ comes at that point to, to, to dwell in our hearts through his spirit. Well, the same way, Christ communes with us and is present with us in a very unique sense in the Lord's Supper by virtue of the spirit through the faith of the believer. Okay, so um, there's no corporalness. There's no carnality in that. It's a, it's a spiritual presence. So uh, remember in an earlier part, we talked about ex opere operato, which is the work worked. Um, the presence of Christ isn't there simply because the bread and the, the cup have been consecrated, nor simply because the bread and the cup are present. Uh, the presence of Christ is there to, the, to those who have faith. In other words, those with faith come into the presence of Christ by faith in the Lord's Supper. Might be a better way to put it, guys. I think we're gonna have to table this one as a as a as its own separate part. Uh, we still have saints and Mariology as the next section. We're gonna get into this idea of of praying to saints and and Mariology with that, and then after that we have Scripture and tradition. I I, I want to spend a decent amount of time on those sections, and um and I also don't want to produce, you know, uh, content that's too long, and we're already here at forty minutes. So I'm gonna go ahead and cut it off here. If this video was helpful to you, please uh, consider subscribing to the channel, firstly, 
and then sharing this episode. Give it a thumbs up. If you have any suggestions, let me know in the comments. God bless you guys. Have a good one.